And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. The message is coming from 1 Corinthians 15. It's only 58 verses, so just sit back, relax, you know, you'll get to lunch later. No, we will be going through the whole chapter, but we're certainly not going to go verse by verse today. I want to begin in Galatians 3.13. Paul says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus bore that curse while hanging on that cross. Now, the effect of the curse was expressed most acutely when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That event took place on a Friday afternoon, and Jesus was taken off the cross just before sundown, which would mark the beginning of the Sabbath. And as Paul Harvey would say, how many remember Paul Harvey? Yeah, I wish you were still around to do his gig or somebody would have taken over. Paul Harvey would say, now the rest of the story. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come this morning just uh, seeking your spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand the truth of what the resurrection means, uh, Father. Not just the fact that, yes, it is a reality, but it has consequences. It has has accomplished things for us, both now and for eternity. So we give you praise and glory for that. Help us to see it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, just so you can get a taste of what Easter is about, I'm going to read Mark's account. Now, this is coming from Mark 16. It says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome uh, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him, meaning Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday to the Jew, okay, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? This would have been a big stone and would have taken several men to move it. And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. Woo! He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment has seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Right? Well, that's Mark's gospel account of that historic and really eventful uh, Sunday morning there. Jesus died on the cross Friday afternoon, and he was put in the tomb. Now it's Sunday morning, and an angel tells these women that Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, All of the Gospels treat the resurrection of Jesus as an actual historical fact. My focus this morning is on verse 12 that Ron read a minute ago. It's the question that Paul poses. He says, how can some of you, he's writing to the church at Corinth, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? Evidently, Paul had gotten word that that particular teaching was taking place at Corinth. That's what the Sadducees believed. They did not believe in a resurrection. But Paul is going to nip it in the bud. He, he spends the entire 15th chapter 
um, you know, arguing for the resurrection. Uh, this chapter is long. It's 58 verses, but it breaks down nicely into four separate thoughts, thoughts that kind of make up my outline this morning. First, there is the fact of the resurrection. Second is the order of the resurrection. Third is the nature of the resurrection. And then fourth is the mystery. There is still a mystery. All right, and that's, that's for us in the future. Before we looked at the, at the fact of the resurrection, notice the importance of the resurrection. There in verse 1, Paul says that he preached the gospel, and they had received the gospel, and they were currently standing in the gospel. Now in verse 2, it really smacks of Hebrews 3, 6, and 14. I'll let you read that on your own, those two verses. But here in verse 2, Paul says, by which you are being saved, you, you are currently being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, Paul says here that they are being saved in the present if they hold fast in the future the word that he preached to them. Now, personally, I don't think that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, but there's no doubt that he and that writer are on the same page here. You're something now if you continue to hold to something in the future. And what this is telling us, that a real source of assurance in our life is our diligent perseverance in our faith in Christ. So, number one, let's, let's take a look at the fact of the resurrection According to Paul, the resurrection is an essential component of the gospel. In verses 3 and 4, he says that he, he, of first importance are the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Now, he's talking about the gospel. That's the gospel in a nutshell, y'all, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He lends credence to the death and resurrection by saying that they happened according to the Scriptures. In other words, they were prophesied in the Old Testament, and now they have come true. They, they've been fulfilled. After reminding his readers that the death and resurrection of Jesus had fulfilled prophecy, he, record, he records all the people that had seen the risen Lord, and the numbers are pretty incredible. This would, this would be considered a physical proof of the resurrection. Paul says that Jesus appeared to Cephas. Who's Cephas? Peter. That's Peter. All right? Cephas, Peter. Then he, then he appeared to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 at one time, and many of them were still living when Paul was writing this letter. Then he appeared to James, the half-brother of Jesus, and then to all the apostles at the ascension. And last of all, Jesus appeared to Saul. Remember him on the road to Damascus? Saul later becomes known as Paul. All right, and that's uh, the one who actually wrote the passage that we're reading from this morning. And multiple eyewitnesses, which is what Paul lays out here, that makes a compelling proof, and that's Paul's purpose here. He's establishing the historical fact of the resurrection. Next, Paul begins what's really a philosophical defense of the fact of the resurrection. In verse 13, he argues that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then his preaching has been in vain, Paul's preaching, and by extension, their faith is in vain. He believed what they, I mean, they believed what he was preaching. Well, not only that, Paul and Apollos and Peter and others, they would stand condemned as false witnesses against God because they preach that he actually did rise from the grave. Um, 
And that would be a lie if he did not. He makes this point again in verse 16. If the dead are not risen, then not even Christ has been raised. And then verses uh, 17 through 19, we see four things here that are pretty important. Number one, if, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. Uh, it, it profits you nothing. You're, you're wasting your time. It's of no value to you. If Christ has not been raised, then number two, you are still in your sins. Jesus is not your Savior. He has not redeemed you from the curse of the law. You were not purchased with His blood. In other words, Jesus died in vain. The cross without the resurrection is meaningless. Well, if Christ had not been raised, then number three, those who have fallen asleep, that is, died in Christ, have perished. Now, the word perished is also translated as destroyed. Uh, this word implies that the Corinthians who denied the resurrection apparently believed in annihilation or the extinction of, excuse me, extinction of being. Not only would the believers' bodies be destroyed, decaying in the ground, but their souls would cease to exist. And if Christ had not been raised, then number four, Paul says that we of all men are most to be pitied. We've given our lives over to something of no eternal significance. We've invested our time in this thing called the Bible, thinking that it has something special to say to us. We've been praying to, to who knows what. We've been living in a fantasy world. There is no God. There is no heaven. You live and then you die. That's it. There is no more. Now, that's what atheists believe. But do you realize that since Jesus has been raised and Christianity is true and God's word is sure, that those outside of the Christ are the ones to be most pitied. They need the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they don't even know it. And that's why we've got to tell them. Paul uses these first 19 verses to just establish the fact of the resurrection. He's made an evidentiary appeal through the eyewitnesses and a, a philosophical appeal. Now, there are many more what we would call proofs of the gospel. James, this morning, he did the opening, and he said his, his most, to him, the most convincing proof, and, and I kind of feel this way as well, is the turnaround in the apostles' lives. Do you remember when Jesus died where they, 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 they stayed hidden in, in a, behind locked doors? They, they were cowering in fear and did, what, did not know what to do. They encountered Jesus 40 days after, excuse me, 50 days, well, 10 days after his ascension, they're now filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happens? They turn the world upside down. Something happened. Yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. Well, number two, let's look at the verses that establish the order of the resurrection. In verse 20, he begins with a, just a positive assertion by saying, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, Christ has been risen from the dead. Don't let that word asleep throw you. How many people like to sleep? Oh, y'all are lying. Yeah, sleep, we, we think, you know, we generally have good connotations when we talk about sleep. This is a marvelous analogy for believers who have died. Eight times in Scripture, Paul uses this analogy. 
talking about believers who have died. He says they are asleep. Now he goes on to say in verses 22 and 23, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. That's pretty clear. First Christ, then those who are his at his coming. We're going to get to that a little bit, little bit later. I want to comment on verse 22. Universalists use this verse, one in Romans 5 and one in 1 Timothy, to construct a theology that says eventually all people will be saved. It's called universalism. Right? They deny that hell exists or that God holds anyone accountable for their actions. Now, let's read just verse 22. It says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. If you just read it, you know, at first glance, it seems to make sense. In Adam we all die, and in Christ we're all going to live. After all, Jesus is referred sometimes to as the last Adam. So what's going on here? In the Bible, we find two major categories that most everything fits into. Those two categories are creation and redemption. Creation and redemption. Marriage, that's the very first uh, institute that was ordained by God. And it was, you remember, it was Adam and Eve in the garden. This is what we call an ordinance of creation. It is for all mankind. It's not just for believers. It's for humanity. It's for everybody in creation. What about baptism? Well, baptism, on the other hand, is a, was established for believers. Therefore, it's an ordinance of redemption, not creation. Here's another great example. If you've been here in the past couple of months, this ought to sound a little bit familiar. God has revealed himself in two books. Now, I had a blast with this this morning because I'm facing the crowd out at the fort, right? And the sun is at my back. It's now probably 10 degrees high, and uh, here I am standing, and I said, God, is the, what's his first book? It's creation. I said, just look. There's the sun. The full moon had just gone down a few minutes before as the sun was coming up. We were out there enjoying God's creation. Now, if you were here when we went through Romans 1, 19 and 20, you know there Paul, man, he really lays the hammer down and says that creation... Although it will not save you, it does condemn you to the degree that no one will ever stand before God and say, I didn't know. I didn't know about you. No, you did. That's his first book, Creation. What's his second book? Mentioned it a minute ago. It's the Bible, right? And it's about redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. So, the Bible uses these two categories very often. This verse is a case in point. In Adam, all die. Born into the human race, after the manner of Adam, everyone dies. This is actually part of the curse on all of creation, death. And the verse continues, in Christ, all shall be made alive. Paul here is talking about the redeemed. In other words, all those who are in Christ will be made alive. Now, if you think that is faulty exegesis, all you got to do is read the very next verse. Paul says, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Do you see it? Those who are Christ's, 
Who's he referring to? The redeemed, those who are Christ. Now, many times, Scripture becomes clearer if you let other Scriptures interpret it for you. We call this the analogy of Scripture or the analogy of faith. You let Scripture interpret Scripture, and it forms <laughs> just a marvelous commentary on itself. Now, in verses 24 to 28, Paul sets... He sets out before us the, the consummation of the ages. This is, this is at the end. <laughs> uh, this is when God will put everything, including death, uh, in subjection to Jesus. And then Jesus will deliver up the kingdom to God the Father. And, and Jesus will then be subject to the one who subjected all things under Jesus' feet. That is God, so that God may be all in all. So the order is Jesus first, and then those who are His at His coming. Now in the last section, uh, in the mystery of the resurrection, we'll also see this order mentioned again. Well, number three, let's look at the nature of the resurrection. In verse 35, Paul says, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You know, Paul has a very good way of anticipating questions. <laughs> he knows what he's saying is going to raise questions. So often in his epistles, he will actually state the question and then answer it because he knows it's coming up in his, you know, the people's minds that are reading his letter. Uh, he knows that some of the skeptics here are going to be asking, well, well how are they going to be raised and, and with what kind of body? I'm not going to do a verse by verse on this section. I'll just highlight some of Paul's answers. First, he gives them a lesson in agronomy. How many of you like to farm? Zip, nobody likes to farm anymore. Okay, I see a couple hands go up there. Uh, he says that what you sow doesn't bring forth fruit unless what? Unless it dies first. Jesus said the same thing in John 12, 24, the exact same thing. And you don't sow the end product. If, if you want to grow a, a tomato plant, you don't dig up a full-grown tomato plant, big, dig a big hole and throw it in there and bury it up. No, you start with something small like a seed, right? You put, and it dies, and you put that in the ground, and then God gives it a mature body that He has designed. Now, this is simply an inference that when our bodies die and they're planted in the ground, what comes up at the resurrection? <laughs> it's going to be significantly different and better. Next, Paul offers some contrasts as an illustration. He says, not all flesh is alike, there's the flesh of man and the flesh of beast. There's the flesh of birds and the flesh of fish. They all differ. Then he contrasts the different glories of the heavenly bodies. There is one glory of the sun. And when I said that this morning, I turned around and pointed to it. And another glory of the moon. It had just gone down. And, a, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. Now, notice that he says something about the individual stars, and they differ from each other. This is just another case where we see the Bible accurately describing the reality that we see in science. Then in verse 42, he contrasts the body before and after the resurrection. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. 
It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And he says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, the dead body, it is sown a perishable, dishonorable, weak, and natural body. It is raised as an imperishable, glorified, powerful, and spiritual body. Paul goes on to say that the body sown in death is earthly or of the earth. The body that is raised is spiritual or heavenly. He closes out this section with these words, And just as we have borne the image of the earthly, which we all do, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. These words are somewhat descriptive, but really serve as an assurance to us that we will be raised in spiritual, heavenly bodies when Christ returns. How many are ready to trade yours in right now? Yeah. Well, number four, the last section that Paul talks about is the mystery of the resurrection. In verse 51, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a, a mystery. Now, his, his next words are often found on the walls of church nurseries across America, right? I see some people smiling. They know exactly what it is. Uh, Paul says, and this is supposed to be babies, we shall not all sleep, but we all will be changed, right? That's what he said. He's talking about believers here, but nurseries use it all the time. Yeah, we're not going to sleep, but you better change us, right? This section deals with those believers who are alive on this earth when Jesus comes again. What happens to them? Paul says that it happens in, in a moment, in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And then he contrasts our current physical living bodies with our new spiritual resurrection bodies. Our earthly bodies are perishable. That means that they are subject to decay. They wear out. They break down. They are susceptible to disease and sickness. I'm old enough to know, it, it probably if you're over 30, that you already understand your body is slowly breaking down. Our new bodies, on the other hand, Paul says are imperishable. <laughs> that means that they are not subject to decay. They won't wear out. They won't break down. No more knee replacement surgeries. No more broken hips. The most wicked cancer that this world has ever known will find no place in these new bodies. HIV, not an issue. Cardiac troubles, not a chance. Immortality is another word that Paul uses to describe our resurrection bodies. That's a big word in it. Immortality. Our, bio, our bodies are currently mortal, meaning that they will die. One day they will give out and succumb to death. Our new bodies, however, will be immortal. Death will be conquered. We will live to the Lord forever. Now, in these last few verses, Paul offers us hope even if we do go the way of all the earth and die in these present bodies. He says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin or the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
I want to quote Matthew Henry concerning these last verses. Understand he'd be four or five hundred years old now, so just bear with it. He says, all the saints should not die, but all would be changed. In the gospel, many truths before hidden in mystery are now made known. Death never shall appear in the regions to which our Lord will bear his risen saints. Therefore, let us seek the full assurance of faith and hope that in the midst of pain and in the prospect of death, we may think calmly on the horrors of the tomb, assured that our bodies will there sleep, and in, mean, in the meantime, our souls will be present with Redeemer. Sin gives death all of its hurtful power. The sting of death is sin, but Christ, by dying, has taken out this sting. He has made atonement for sin. He has obtained remission of it. The strength of sin is the law. None can answer its demands, endure its curse, or do away with his own transgressions. Hence, terror and anguish. Hence, death is terrible to the unbelieving and the impenitent. Death may seize a believer, but it cannot hold him in its power. How many springs of joy to the saints and of thanksgiving to God are opened by the death and resurrection, the sufferings and conquests of the Redeemer? End quote. Paul closes out this chapter on the resurrection with an encouraging command. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That means that we can wholeheartedly serve Jesus today, knowing that because of the resurrection of Jesus, our labor is not in vain. We too will live again, but then it will be in imperishable, immortal bodies. And it's all to the praise of His glory. Now, that's part of our hope, right? It's still future to us, the, the, our, the resurrection of our bodies. If Jesus were to come again right now and open up the sky, and in that moment, in the twink, you know, twinkling flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the trumpet of God would sound and Jesus would descend. If that were to happen right now, all of you who in here are in Christ, we, we, we would be spared that physical death. It's a marvelous trans transformation. Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's part of our future hope. And I want to encourage you today, if you're a believer, man, that is a hope that is so far beyond anything bad. Let's just put that, let's put that. Any suffering that you're doing now is going to be nothing compared to the glory that is going to be revealed when Jesus comes again. But if you don't know Jesus, if you're not in Christ here this morning, oh, you don't want that day to come. So, Christ is risen. Let's try it again. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Now you know the rest of the story. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for just the uh, fullness of your word, the way uh, that it convicts us, 
it encourages us, it directs us, it leads us, all of these things, it's absolutely smarter than we are. It is, as the writer of Hebrews says, just uh, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to uh, the dividing of soul and spirit. So, God, we submit to you this morning, as that you do a work in our hearts to understand, to embrace the resurrection, and to live in hope because one day we will be raised as well. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if you don't know Christ, this, this is a call. This was really a message for believers. Okay, there was a lot of truth in there. And, and just the understanding, yes, the gospel really is the death, burial, and resurrection of, the, uh, of Jesus. Uh, that's important. But this is, this is the type of message that would appreciate Easter, look to the future. Yes, we are going to be raised as well. But that's only if you, as Paul says, are in Christ. If you're not in Christ this morning, if you've never trusted God through His Son, Jesus Christ, then none of this applies to you. The Bible is very clear. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And there's only one way to Jesus, right? Jesus Himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Me. Do you know the Father through His Son, Jesus? Scripture is very clear. It's, it's, it's really a kind of a combination of two things. The overriding one is to believe, and when you believe, you will also repent. It's amazing the messages of Jesus and John the Baptist and Paul in Acts where he says, repent and believe the gospel. So yeah, we repent. We turn from our sins and we turn to God. But we simply trust in what Jesus has already done. Okay, there's nothing we can add to it. We're, we're worthless in that regard. We have nothing but sin and transgression and iniquity against us. We can't come to God with anything in our hands saying, will you accept this? The answer will be no. The only thing you can come to is say, just like just in, in Luke 18, you've got this Pharisee and this publican. Okay, He's a tax collector in, in, in the temple. And the publican's like, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people like swindlers and the unjust, uh, the adulterers, or even like this publican here. I fast twice a week. That's a lot. And I give a tenth of everything that I own. And it ends there. Then Jesus speaks for the publican, and the publican was, could not even raise his eyes. He beat his breast, and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know what Jesus said? I tell you that he went home justified right with God that day. Admit you're a sinner to God. Ask him to save you. He will do it. Then you can have assurance that when Jesus comes again, you're going to get a new body too. Whoa. It's going to be great, y'all. If you're a believer, I hope Jesus has been encouraged to understand that the, res the, 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 the resurrection, it's a historical fact that Jesus did rise from the dead. And now he sits enthroned in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Uh, he's interceding for you, believers, right now. <laughs> That's an amazing thought. The resurrection is a great thing for us believers. That's where our hope lies. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.